Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Today we begin a new series um, the way we, were, we should begin this is not the way I'm going to begin it. We're going to do uh, something different. But here in front of me, I'm holding uh, the old Schofield Study Bible with the notes from 1917. I should give you a clue on what we're getting ready to do. But before I open this and before, in a sense, we pretend to go back to 1917 or to go back at any time where someone purchased one of these, opened this box and opened the Bible, and we'll kind of look at what they discovered when they would first do that, or if anyone today was to buy this Bible and open it, what they would discover. We need to really go back in history, and we're going to do kind of a look at a couple of important concepts. We're going to look at the concept of authority. We're going to look at the concept of Bibles, and we're going to look at the concept of theological systems, right? Because I think this is going to kind of lay the foundation. Uh, my original plan was just to come here going, all right, guys, I'm holding this box. This is the Schofield Study Bible, 1917. Let's pretend that we lived then, or even if we pretend we live today, and we were to open this box, here's what we discover, and then we're going to go, whenever we get there, we're going to go through it slowly, and then we'll introduce, obviously, the system this Bible is known for. But that deals with the system. Now, it's a Bible, so that deals with the Bible. And whether we like it or not, when you deal with a Bible or theological systems, you're dealing with the concept of authority. All right? So let's go back in time and let's put this all together. Everyone remembers the date of the Reformation, right? What was the date of the Reformation? October 31st, 1517, all right? And we, and we know, I don't care what kind of Christian you are, what kind of church you go to, obviously the Protestant Reformation is one of the most, one of the most important events in church history. And for everyone who's not a Catholic, you would, we would have to argue maybe the most important event in church history, right? Now, I understand we're supposed to speak of that event with great reverence and we're not to ever speak of the uh, unintended consequences that came from it that were negative, but there were some negative consequences that came from it, right? Because obviously this signified the move from what? Well, it, 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 it was signified the move from the church being the source of authority to something else being the source of authority, right? That was the whole issue with the Protestant Reformation. And, and we can talk about, well, that's a good thing because the church should never have had the authority. 
authority. And everyone will say, well, the Bible should have the authority. Okay, well, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we know that it doesn't quite work that way. But this was a major shift in the authority structure. Okay? And if the church is no longer the authority, then you have to have it. Everyone's going to have to have source to an authority, right? Okay, so we know that once this door is kicked in, once the dam breaks, right? And then basically everyone's like, that's it. We're not going to listen to the magisterium. We're not going to listen to the Pope. Then you're going to have to have an authority. Luther's desire was to transfer the authority. We'll, we'll say his motive was pure. This may question his motive. But okay, we'll say the motive was pure. The Luther intent, we will say, was to transfer the power from the magisterium and from the, from the Pope and from the church to what? To the Bible. Well, everyone says that was, that, now, not everyone, but for all non-Catholics, we say that was the intent to, take, to get from the church to the Bible. Sounds great. Sounds wonderful, does it not? Now, that means, obviously, what's going to have to, ha if you're going to transfer it from the church to the Bible, what needs to happen? People have to get Bibles, right? Okay? You're going to have to start putting Bibles into the hands of people relatively quick. So, we're going to go through some, some history of English Bibles really quick, all right? We'll, we'll go to the Tyndale Bible, all right? The Tyndale Bible. The Tyndale Bible is credited with being the first Bible translated into the English language. Now, we do know that Luther... Luther translated the Bible, right? Everybody remember that? He created German. No, he didn't create the press. Gutenberg uh, created the press. He, he created a German translation, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, all right. everybody remember that? Uh, the Catholics primarily used the Latin Vulgate, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, all right. I remember the Catholic Church, what did they not want to happen? They did not want it translated into all the vulgar languages, right? In other words, everyone had, to, because they wanted to control, in some sense, now, you could argue the good or bad in this, right? They wanted to control the translation process, because who would be, who would they say had the authority to translate it? They would say the church has to, the control. Now, you could say, well, that's horrible. Yeah, but look where we are today with the passion translation or some of the other abominations that have occurred, right? Because once you lose control over it, anyone can make a, Jehovah's Witnesses can make a Bible, right? Anybody can make a Bible. So that, that's, you can see the good and bad, right? So Luther put one into German, all right, which makes sense because the Reformation started in, Germany, okay, so he's got to get the, the Bible. But for, for the English-speaking world, the Tyndale Bible is credited with being the first Bible translation in the English language to work directly from the Hebrew and Greek texts, although it did rely heavily upon the Latin Vulgate. Now, the Tyndale Bible sometimes refers to the body of biblical translations by William Tyndale into early uh, modern English, and it was made between 1522 and 1535. 1522, 1535. Now, 1522 is very close to from the Reformation, okay? And now people are breaking away from the church, and now these translations are going to start being, ma being made, all right? 1522 to 1535. 
All right, does that make sense? All right, furthermore, it was the first English biblical translation that was mass-produced as a result of the new advances in the art of printing. So not only in some ways it's the, you could call it, you know, one of the first English Bibles, especially coming directly from the Hebrew and the Greek. It did rely on the Latin Vulgate, but the most important thing, it was probably the first uh, Bible mass-produced, or at least the first English Bible mass-produced. And this is very important, right? Why does it need to be mass-produced? Because now, supposedly, who do you not turn to for the answers? The church. You're supposed to turn to God's word. So everyone needs a copy. Everyone needs a copy. They need the copy. They need the copy. All right, so does that make sense? Now, just so that we know for historical sake, everyone calls it the Tyndale Bible, but we probably shouldn't. All right? Um, because Tyndale never actually published a completed English language Bible. All right? Instead, a completed translation of the Bible was completed by Miles Coverdale. He, he, he is forgotten. Miles Coverdale just gets forgotten in it. Everyone knows it as the Tyndale. Now, his supplemented Tyndale's translations with his own to, provo- to produce, ultimately, the first complete printed Bible in English in 1535. So really, in theory, it takes till 1535 before you get the completed Bible. Tyndale had lots of different parts of it translated, and maybe some of that was being produced, but ultimately, 1535 is where you get it. So that's, a, that's still a pretty good t- time, right? Right, that's still a pretty good time. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? The Reformation occurs when? 1517. Before you really have a completed Bible in English, you have to wait till 1535. Now, what does that tell you? I want you to really think about this because it, ma- it makes a major important statement in the history of the church that nobody in the church ever wants to discuss. There were lots of people running around for 18 years making dogmatic assertions about who was right and who was wrong, and many of those people did not even have a completed Bible in their language. All right? And when I say many people, I'm not talking necessarily maybe theologians or pastors. I'm talking the average person sitting where? In the pew. Because those people in the pew, by them being there and not at mass, they were making a claim that who was wrong. They were making a claim that the Catholic Church was wrong, right? I want everyone to hear that. By them sitting in the pew and not being in a Catholic church, they were making a statement that who was wrong? The church. What were they basing it on?
They were basing it on someone else's teaching, okay? I want you to see that. I want you to hear that. I want you to write that down. I know that doesn't fit our romanticized version of church history because we have this romanticized version of church history that the average farmer picked up a Bible and was like, well, that no good, dirty, rotten pope. He lied to me this whole time. He didn't, I, I got to read my Bible and really, that's not the way it was necessarily going down. In many cases, what was happening? I never liked the church anyway, telling me what to do, making me these rules, telling me when to fast, telling me when I could do this, telling me I have to go to church, telling me I have to go to mass, telling me I was in a mortal sin. Now I can do what? I can break away. And I can do my own thing. What were they basing it off of? Okay, I want you to hear. They were basing it primarily off someone else's teaching. So in a roundabout way, they replaced one authority with another authority. And in many cases, that authority wasn't what? For those listening online, I'm holding up a Bible. I cannot stress that. Nobody wants to ever acknowledge that. If you reject the magisterium, and now you're only listening to, quote-unquote, the reformers, are you any better than the people still listening to the magisterium? You've only replaced one pope with what? Another pope. I would have to look at the date for the German one. It was, uh, someone can look it up if they want. Uh, uh, see, we'll get the date. I was trying to go with the English Bible, so that's why I didn't write down the date of the German translation, but okay, I will. Oh, no, in that area, they probably got one relatively earlier. I'm talking to the English-speaking people. Okay. Uh, hang on, let me see here. Trying to hurry, trying to do this. Okay, I think he started with the New Testament. 1522, I believe. That was just the New Testament. And I don't know when the whole thing. I think uh, maybe the whole thing is 1534. So about the same time frame. So even then, it took a long time, right? Took a long time. I mean, painstaking to, to try to translate the Bible, right? So I still want you to know, even if, if Luther's doesn't even show up to 1534, even for the German-speaking people. So guess what? They were, revi- now they may have been using the Latin Vulgate, but still they were ultimately breaking away. I cannot stress this enough because I feel this gets left out of church history because everyone just feels like all of a sudden people just woke up and like, I'm going to read my Bible and that no good Catholic church. That's not exactly how it went down. Most people did not own what? A Bible. If they wanted to hear the Bible, where did they go? A lot of people couldn't even read, right? They had to go to church. So they, I just want you to see that, that it's not as beautiful and romantic as we wanted to make it look like. In many cases, the people broke away from the Catholic Church more for what reasons? Now, I'm not saying all. I'm saying we cannot deny this. Some broke away for their own personal reasons. 
They didn't like the church telling them what to do. They didn't like, like to be under that authority. Because in many cases, the Catholic church not only kind of served, what remember, they constantly mixed the church with what? Civil law, right? So in some cases, if you didn't like this whole authoritative structure, abandon the authoritative structure. I just want you to see in many cases, they simply replaced one church authority with another church authority. And in many cases, then they would establish their church authority as civil law and then try to punish people under their civil law. So there was, in other words, there was a lot of what involved in this. Starts with a P. Kind of a lot of politics going on here. Okay, all right. I cannot stress this enough. You have to see how this plays out. Okay, you've got to see how this plays out, right? So for English-speaking people, we end up with the Tyndale Bible. And it really should be called whose Bible? Miles Coverdale, all right? Miles Coverdale, really. I mean, now Tyndale laid down a lot of the work, but Coverdale had to finish it all up, even though who gets no credit for it? Coverdale. Probably if I asked you who Miles Coverdale was, you probably wouldn't even know, Correct. All right, so now you do, okay? So, we have the Reformation, okay? And a- around the same time as Tyndale, you have Germans, uh, the Lutheran, uh, Luther's German translation. But Tyndale is sometimes referred to as the first Bible translated in English language, directly, directly working from the Hebrew and Greek text, okay? Now, that brings us to the Matthew Bible, also known as Matthew's version. The Matthew Bible. Anybody know what year this was published? Fifteen thirty-seven, and it was uh, under the pseudonym Thomas Matthew. Now, does anybody know what they did with the Matthew Bible? All right. Probably don't. Here we go. They combined the New Testament of William Tyndale and much of the Old Testament as he had been able to translate before being captured and put to death. Miles Coverdale translated chiefly from German and Latin sources and completed the Old Testament and the biblical Apocrypha, except for the prayer of Manasseh, which was Rogers, into the Coverdale Bible. It thus is a vital link in the main sequence of the English Bible translations. So he kind of took some of the, they kind of took some of the stuff that people had put together, added the Apocrypha, left out the prayer of Manasseh, and then kind of put it all together. All right? That's kind of a, a, a very bad way of trying to describe it, but there you go. All right? But it's a sequence in English Bibles. Now what does this demonstrate? What do you think historically does this demonstrate? That once the dam broke, okay, not so much that it was falling apart, but that people were doing what? Now people are going to start gathering different translations and start putting them together. Now, and you could argue, well, wait a minute, why would he include the Apocrypha? Right? And why? And guess what? You know, is he picking, he, he left something out of it, did he not? Meaning what? That again, pick and choose a little bit. Now, I'm not saying it's radical. But I'm just saying, you're starting to see now how everyone's going to start going around claiming that they're right. Okay, just, just keep that in mind, all right? That's 1537. 
But there's much more we could say about that one, but I, you know, I don't want to spend, you know, 1537. All right, so we've gone from 1517 to 1537. All right, we can say, now, there could be other, I, I mean, this is like a Cliff Notes version of all of this. Everyone understand this. So don't walk away going, now you're an expert on early, you know, Bibles, okay? This is like basic, 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 like elementary school stuff, okay? All right? Now, that brings us to the next one, 1539, the great Bible, the, what? That's what it was called, the great Bible, all right, I need to verify something, I've got to make sure i got the right king here, I don't want to say, I don't want to give the wrong Hang on. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll make, I just, didn't want to give you a fraudulent information here. Okay. All right. The Great Bible, 1539. Now, are you ready? This is the first authorized edition of the Bible. The first authorized. Now, that, that kind of makes me laugh a little bit, right? Well, how, wait a minute. The first authorized no, no, exactly, by whom, right? Because was the Catholic Church authorizing any of these other translations? No, they fought against it. Tyndale's put to death, right? They, they're not a fan. So who, author, who came along and said, no, I'm going to authorize it? Does anybody know? Come on, who, who do you think authorized this one? Yeah, which king? Okay, well, I was just looking up the number. Henry the Eighth of England. Do we know anything about Henry the Eighth? <laughs> yeah, he had he had a, a how many wives? Six, right? Okay, I, I think I think it's kind of funny. He's the one doing the authorization now, right? Okay, so he he uh, Henry the Eighth of England. Uh, he's the one who authorized it to be read aloud in the church services of the. Church of England, the Church of England. Right, this is 1539. Guess who it was prepared by? You know his name. Miles Coverdale. Okay, he's, he's showing up all over the place, is he not? And he worked under the commission of Thomas Cromwell, secretary to Henry VIII. In 1538, Cromwell directed the clergy to provide one book of the Bible of the largest volume in English and the same set up in some convenient place within the said church that you have care of, whereas your parishioners may most comfortably and conveniently resort to the same and read it. Like they wanted to put it somewhere in one volume in the church where people could come and read it. Isn't that crazy? Meaning, what, what's kind of the, seemingly what seems to this seems to indicate? They don't have their own Bible. I want you to understand that. They don't have their own Bible. I cannot stress that enough. Like, I know when I say that, the average person sitting in the pew is like, yeah, so what? So what? We're what year now? No, when this happens, the Great Bible. 
1539. How, how far is that removed from the Reformation? 22 years. We already now have the Church of England, right? We have an entire competing church. All those people choosing which church to go to, most of them were choosing it on the basis of what? What were they basing their decision on? If they don't have a Bible, what are they basing it on? It's not a trick question. What someone has taught them, I cannot stress this enough, they have replaced what? One authority with, I cannot, I, I, I'm going to repeat that until every time I ask the question, I get 100% participation because it's the most significant thing to know about church history. Because it just demonstrates how fraudulent so much of the way church history is taught. I do not agree with the way church history taught in this romanticized version. There's just all these people sitting around engaged in serious Bible study determining doctrine. They just listen to the people they want to listen to and go with it. And guess what? In some cases, they will go with what? Whoever's controlling a specific area. Because whoever controls a specific area typically merged their theology with the civil law. So it would make sense to do what? Go along with them, right? Because if you, if you ended up in Calvin's Geneva, you better do what? Go along with the teaching or you're going to die. Right? Which, which then demonstrates so much of it wasn't even religious. It was just based off convenience, which that, that I, you've got to at least acknowledge how that destroys the romanticized version of it, right? Now, I'm not saying there weren't people out there who had access. I'm not saying there weren't people out there who were. There were people doing that. But I'm just saying the average person, whether I don't know what the preachers were thinking at the time. They could be thinking, look at all these people coming to listen to me. And it could be just people who were just tired of what? The Pope. Right? That's 1539. Now, the Great Bible includes much of the Tyndale Bible. So you can see how Tyndale becomes like really key. Every, a lot, all the Bibles are basically bringing his content over. Does everyone get the, are, is everyone understanding that? Now, listen, but here's, now this is funny. You ready? The Great Bible includes much of the Tyndale Bible with the objectionable features revised. Now, objectionable to whom? Do you see how it works? If the next person doesn't like the previous part, you just do what? You take it out or change it. And now, the, uh, we have already talked, the Tyndale Bible originally was incomplete. Coverdell translated the remaining books of the Old Testament and the Apocrypha from the Latin Vulgate and German translations rather than working from the original Greek and Hebrew. All right. That's interesting. He goes back to the, the, this shows you the significance of the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate shows up over and over and over as well. Okay. Um, although called the Great Bible because of its large size, it is known by several other names as well. The King's Bible, because of the King uh, uh, Henry VIII of England authorized and permitted it. The Cromwell Bible, since Thomas Cromwell directed its publication. Um, I think it was called Witch Church's Bible because that was the name of the first English printer. Uh, the Chained Bible, since it was chained to prevent being removed from the church. 
and it has less accurately been termed Kramer's Bible uh, or Kramer's Bible, since although Thomas Kramer was not responsible for the translation, a preface by him appeared in the second edition. Now, please note, it was chained. I just stress that because early on in my theological education, I was always taught that the mean Catholic church had it chained up because they didn't want the people to have it. Well, it was chained up here as well because they didn't want people to do what? Carry it out of the church, right? Now, you could, but was it some, was it for some nefarious reason? No, they, because it cost a lot to print the thing. And what did they wanted it to be there? Access for everyone, right? They wanted people to have access to it. Have, but once again, I cannot stress the fact that it was chained so that people could have access demonstrates that people did not have what? Their own. And because they didn't have their own, that tells me that many of those people who chose to sit in either the Church of England or any or, or following Luther's or following Zwingli or whoever they were following, they were following them not necessarily on the basis of their own personal Bible study, but they were following them based because they heard someone preach something and they thought, that's right, and the other is wrong. And when the people are hearing and deciding, then you could argue who really is the authority at that point. If the people are hearing and deciding, who is really the authority at that moment? Each individual. So in a roundabout way, we already see, remember my, my, what has been my claim about the Protestant Reformation? Y'all have heard me preach this now for basically ever. Is that the, the, you're, you start way over here, right? Over this wall. This represents the church being in the authority, the magisterium and the pope, right? Luther was like, no, that cannot be. We've got to remove the authority. And then he wanted the authority. And now I come to the middle of the church, the pulpit. He wanted, and I'm holding a Bible. He wanted the authority to go from there to what? The Bible. But inadvertently, and now I know Catholics would argue he didn't really want that. He wanted to get married and he, he had his own negative reasons for doing so, okay? And that he was crazy, which it's hard to say he wasn't crazy. But that's a whole different point, right? That... It inadvertently skipped over the Bible and the pulpit and it ended way over here in the other side of the church, oh, way over here to this wall, to the, to the individual. Now, when I say that, everyone gets mad at me. They're like, that's not true. The Bible is the final authority. The, but I will argue it's just as much garbage to say that then as it is to say it in 2023. The Bible is not the authority in 2023, and anyone who thinks that it is, is lying to themselves. Because you know what happens? The same thing happens. Individuals decide what is right and what is what's wrong. The only difference is, here, they were listening to the individuals. You know what happens in 2023? If I say something someone doesn't like, what do they do? Do you think they run home and spend hours and hours 
taking the text apart and outlining and cross-referencing and looking up and looking. No, they will go. If they don't like what I say, they run, they hop on the internet, find someone who agrees with them. And then when they come argue with me, typically, what do you think I hear? Do you think I hear an in-depth exegetical argument? No, I typically go, well, it's interesting you're quoting page 52 from MacArthur's Gospel According to Jesus, or you're quoting page 86 of R.C. Sproul. It's like, in many cases, I know what they're actually quoting. And it's like, if all you're going to do is regurgitate what you found on the internet, there's no point in having this conversation. You just, you think you're acting like you know, all you're doing is quoting them. This whole thing is mute. There's no point in arguing. I can go look up, and I can get online and look up someone who, oh, look, look, I got more articles than you got. So then what is it? Is it, is it who has the most articles wins? So that means what is not the authority? The Bible. We all want to say that it is. I just want you to realize, these people did not have the Bible. So guess what? They were listening to someone. I know I'm destroying everyone's romanticized view of church history, but if we're, if we're not going to, look, we may not want to admit this, but this is the very kind of arguments that are used by, uh, by atheists and agnostics to say your entire system is a fraud. It's all a scam. You guys are no, you don't believe the Bible any more than I do. All you do is find your authority and you buy into that because you're not actually doing the work. Think of all of your theological positions you hold to today. Like if I was to tell you to take a piece of paper now and write down all of your theological certainties. Honestly, how much, how many hours does your theological conclusions that you hold to today are based off extensive exegetical work in the text? How many hours did you really pour into the text? The text, not looking up a commentary, not looking up a sermon, the actual text where you lived and breathed it. You know everything about it from Genesis to Revelation. You know every verse. You know every difficulty. I think if you're honest with yourself, you're probably not going to have a lot of hours put in, are you? Can we all be honest? If, 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 if those listening online, they, you can tell me, I, because sometimes they're more blunt because they're anonymous. They can be more honest and like, give me a break. I probably haven't spent two minutes, right? Because, because the rea- now we think we have, but in reality, we just went and looked up books on a different, from a different perspective, right? If you're, if you're, if you don't like this group, then you go find all the people on this side. And then, now, now, they will quote scripture in their books and then you will read those scriptures and you'll convince yourself that you're actually doing Bible study, but you're not doing Bible study. Now, remember I told you there was going to be another word I'm going to add here, right? We've talked about authority. We talked about Bible. Because there's going to be another word that's going to come into play here. Remember, I, I, remember does everybody remember that word? It starts with an S. Nobody does? Okay, I'll I'll repeat it here in a minute when we get closer to the time, all right? Now, because the next Bible is going to become instrumental in this whole thing. The next Bible is 1560. 1560. 
in this Bible is referred to as being one of the most historically significant translations of the Bible into English. This is considered one of the most historically significant translations of the Bible into English. Does anybody know which Bible this is? Some may say it's more significant than the King James. King James comes out when? 1611, right? Right? Am I right? Or am I wrong? Yeah, the first one, all right? Okay, so this one goes back way before it. Or I say, I don't have math. I'm horrible at math. I just know the date of this one. 1560. So you can tell me how many years removed that is or before. How many years? 51 before the King James. Okay, there we go. 1560. Does everybody know what this is? There you go. I know. I, I said your, your mom would have known which one it is, right? This is the Geneva Bible, right? The Geneva Bible. This one is important. Oh, this one is so important. Does anybody know why this Bible is so important? Okay, well, I'll give you some information here, all right? It was the primary Bible of the 16th century English Protestantism. It was used by William Shakespeare, Oliver Cromwell, John Knox. And guess what? This is important. This was one of the Bibles taken to America on the Mayflower. I think there's one in the Pilgrim Hall Museum. I think. But they collected a number of Bibles that were uh, Mayflower passengers had. And... Guess which? It was the Geneva Bible. Now, that, that's, that's possibly a good indicator, right? What does that possibly indicate? Now, you could argue anyone who was on the Mayflower probably was wealthy or had probably a means, or at least maybe the captains. Or we don't know who, who owned these Bibles. But the point is, it may demonstrate that the Bible was getting more and more into the hands of, of the people. Now, that sounds good, but there's a negative part of this, okay? All right? Because there's a lot of things going on here with this Bible, right? The version of this Bible, this is so important. The Geneva Bible is very significant for this reason. Are you ready? It's the first time a mechanically printed, mass-produced Bible was made available Directly to the general public. Fifteen, remember I told you it showed up on the Mayflower? Right? I told you that that was an interesting sign. Here's why. This is the first time a mechanically printed, mass-produced Bible was made available directly to the general public. Wrap our minds around that. What year are we in? 1560. How far are we from now, the Protestant Reformation? 43 years. And for the first time. Meaning, for 43 years. I'm not talking about those who could read the Bible. I'm not talking about those who had access to the Bible. I'm talking the average person was walking around probably condemning 
may even be referring to the Pope as the Antichrist, referring to the Catholic Church as possibly the whore of Babylon or whatever words they were using. And guess what? They were doing so, in many cases, without ever touching what? A Bible. If that doesn't, like, that should just bother you. And it's also why Catholics will laugh in your face when they try to say the whole Protestantism was based off the Bible. No, it wasn't. It was based off individuals deciding they don't like those people and they're going to listen to those people. And there's no way for you to argue against a Catholic who would make that claim because these people had made entire theological decisions without ever touching a Bible. Right? That's pretty significant. We're in 15, but guess what else is going to happen here? This Bible came with scriptural study guides and aids collectively called an apparatus. Meaning, in some ways, guess what the Geneva Bible was? The first study Bible. Now we introduce a whole new issue, right? Remember we talked about authority. We've talked about Bibles. That third word, system or theological system. Now we institute or now we introduce the concept of a system. Now, why is this important? Because the system now becomes what? The, not only a part of your Bible, the system now will become your authority. Not only will the system become your authority. Are you ready for this? This is the, this is like so important. His church, from a historical perspective, it becomes the thing that guides, directs, and tells you how to exegete. And all, everything at that point is over. It's the end. In some ways, you could argue that in 1560, now I know nobody in history will say what I'm about to say, but in 1560, Bible being the authority was put in a coffin. It was nailed shut. The coffin was burned. The ashes were gathered up and thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. Why? Why would I make such an outlandish claim uh, about that from a historical perspective? Why would I say that? Because when a system now tells you how to exegete scripture, what becomes your ultimate authority? The system. Now, for those who didn't hear my preview yesterday, I spent an hour previewing this and I talked an hour about this problem, right? And I'm not the only person ever to, please don't think I'm the only person ever talk about this problem. There's been plenty of others in church history going, the, the Bible's not your authority. Stop lying. 
Your system becomes your authority because when your system tells you how to exegete, does everyone understand how a system tells you how to exegete scripture? Does everyone understand how that works? When you became a Christian, what were you taught first? How to exegete and how to study or were you told what to believe? You were told what to believe. Once you're told what to believe, how do you read scripture? Through that lens. Guess what's guiding and controlling your exegesis? Your system. Meaning, what's the authority? Your system. And guess what? Once the system is in place, you're now blind to true biblical exegesis. That's why most Christians will not. Look, I don't, I, 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 look, I, I'm, I'm more jaded than I've ever been in my entire Christian life, but I know it's now just a sham. It's just, it's a waste of time, right? Is someone, is people going to spend, I mean, people get together all the time claiming they're doing Bible studies. They don't do Bible studies, right? They, they buy a book and then everyone gets a book and they study that book. Nobody actually studies the Bible because I have taught Bible study methods for a bazillion years. You can't get people to do Bible study methods on a regular and consistent basis. You can't get people to use the thematic method, the topical method, the chapter summary method. I can go through all the methods. I've taught them and taught them. You cannot get people to do them. They do them once or twice to learn the method and then that's it. They're not on a regular consistent basis. When was the last time you pulled out a Bible study method and used it? When was the last time? You ran any of chapter analysis, chapter summary. I can go on and on and on. Topical, thematic, biographical, right? You ran an entire method from beginning. Nobody does that. Yet everyone will tell you, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Yet they were not actually doing Bible study. You know why they say I'm wrong? Based off a system the whole thing is a scam the whole thing is a, it's it's all a sham i'm just so tired of hearing all about it that in 1560 you now have the first study bible and that study bible has it's going to have information in it that that carries a specific theological system i cannot stress that enough All right, I know that I'm just going to tick off the whole world on this, but that's okay. This included verse citations that allowed the reader to cross-reference one verse with numerous relevant verses. But guess who determined which verses are relevant? The people who produced the Bible, all right? Now, I got no problem. So please note, this is where the first cross-referencing starts, which is going to be very significant because the next Bible that really uses this is going to be not till 1907, by Schofield, right? So you're going to be a long time before people start continue using the referencing system. Why do you think it takes so long for someone else to come up with a referencing system? That's a lot of work, is it not? That's a lot of work, okay? All right. Introductions to each book of the Bible show up. Yeah, how it's common now for you to open a Bible and see... Now, now that, guess what happens? Geneva Bible, 1560, all right? And now guess what? Is that not going to influence how you interpret the book? 
Absolutely is going to influence how you enter. If you open your Bible and you read the introduction, that introduction is going to kind of tell you this is what the book is about. And, and uh, you hope in many cases that it's what? Neutral. It's still logically neutral. But I have shown you guys 50,000 times whenever we pick up the dictionary. What do I try to show? This is why I, we have dictionaries here. I tell you to open it. In many cases, I've shown you how the outlines in the Bible dictionary are what? Interpretation, not observation. I've shown you that a million times. And when we start reading the entries in the Bible dictionary, what do we find sometimes? A clear theological bias. Does the Bible dictionary tell you at the beginning the theology of the authors? No, it doesn't. So you have to be the one to figure it out. If you don't know, guess what happens? You may follow that system and thinking that you're not following a system, but you're following a system. So let me state this. Ignorance of a system does not negate what? It's influence. I didn't know the system I was being given early on as a Christian. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that there were different systems. When I was a young Christian and I picked up the gospel according to Jesus by MacArthur, do you think I had any idea that this was a different system than other systems? I had no clue. cannot stress the importance of this Bible. This changes everything in 1560. All right? Guess what? It has an introduction to each book of the Bible that acted to summarize all the material of that book that would cover. It had maps, tables, woodcut illustrations, and basically an index. And my understanding is it also had the notes. You can look up online, uh, Geneva Study Bible Notes from 1560. You can get a PDF with all of their notes. And just because it says Geneva probably gives you an idea, right? Geneva is very famous for what? Calvin. Calvinism. Right? A system. So if you bought... Or got your hands on. And guess what? This was the first one mass produced to whom? The people. Now, guess what? Isn't it interesting that you could possibly see the rise and the domination of a lot of reformed Calvinistic theology at that time? I wonder why. I wonder why that system would possibly become the system for so many people of theology. I wonder why. What do you think? Because people were engrossed in serious Bible study and coming to these conclusions? Could it possibly be they were doing what? Reading notes in a study Bible and that becoming the dominant theological system. I hate to be jaded, but ladies and gentlemen, there's no way to get around that. There's no way to get around that. So, historically, what happened? Who was in charge? The church. Who controlled the doctrine? I mean, the church told you what was a dogma and what wasn't a dogma. And if you didn't follow the dogma, what did the church uh, declare? You are anathema. Who said they had the authority not only to interpret the Bible, but to translate the Bible? The church, right? It was all the church, the church, the church. 1517, Luther says what? I know not maybe these exact words, but figuratively speaking, he told the church, 
You no longer have that authority. You've lost it. And he basically claimed the authority for what? Himself. Okay, I know we're not supposed to say that because that makes us sound like Catholic, but he claimed it for himself. Because what did he start doing? He interpreted it and he made a Bible. Okay, right? Did everyone see that? He He basically started acting as the Pope, right? Okay, I mean, there's no way to get around it, right? And then after that, other people started producing Bibles and Bibles. And then we finally get to the one that's mass produced for the general public. And guess when you finally put it in the hands of the general public, do you put into their hands the unadulterated scripture alone? Oh, no, 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 no. What do you put in the hands of the general public? A study Bible with what? A system. A system. So now that the person has the system and then what controls their hermene- or their exe- exegetical work of the... It almost becomes eisegesis, but that's a whole different problem. Exegesis, they'd be, it really is eisegesis because now they're going to read the system where? Exe- an exegesis or an exegetical study, you're doing what? You're pulling out from it. An eisegesis, you're in a sense reading into it. Well, now that you have a system, what are you going to do? Read the system into it. I state all of that history because in the next hour, we began a study of a system, right? That system starts in 19, well, actually starts before then, but as far as our Bibles are concerned, starts in 1909, I believe is the first edition, and then 1917 is the second edition. That 1917 one is I'm holding right here. This is the classic edition of the Schofield Bible. Many people criticize it because, oh, it's just a system. It's just a study Bible. I'm sorry, that started where? 1560. He just waits a long time before this comes out. And then guess what's going to happen? Isn't it magically, isn't it interesting? This one sells like a million copies, like, I don't know, a couple of million copies relatively early. By, by the time you get to World War II, like the thing's selling like hotcakes, right? And then guess what happens? Once this gets into the hands of people, it becomes the dominant theological system that begins to take over the American church. I wonder why. I wonder why. Because the average American was engaged in serious Bible study? Or the average American now had what in their hands? A system. Meaning that the whole thing is a scam when Christians are claiming, I believe this because I study. You believe it because you've learned a system. And now that you've learned a system, you think you're a theological genius. And so now you'll tell everyone else that they're wrong as you cite your great authority, meaning you read some books. You read a study Bible. Wow. So impressed. Because guess what it means? That the reality is very few people actually study the Bible. And guess where that problem begins? Not only only, it's always been a church problem, 
It starts in seminaries and Bible colleges. Because when you go to seminary and Bible college, guess what you're taught? System. Which now controls your exegesis. And then I stand here, give, and, you, and, and whether people claim or not, guess what you want? A system. You want it nice and packaged. And you want it in 35-minute little bits. You don't, want, you don't want the pastor to do what? Everybody, nobody wants the pastor to do theology. Nobody wants to be in a church where you do. What's the difference between doing theology and learning theology? What's the difference between, remember, I said years ago that we were going to transition into a church that does theology, right? And I just kind of shrugged your shoulders like it was no big deal. You didn't understand the significance of that. What's the difference between learning and doing? What's the difference between learning and doing theology? Y'all have to be able to answer this question or you... Right, if I, if I, because all I have to do is go home and go, okay, okay, what am I supposed to do with this passage? I do, you can do what all pastors do. You look up a commentary that agrees with what? The agreed upon system, right? Because, because now they got to make sure, because you're taught that early on in church, right? When you go to church, you know, people will say, pastor, which commentary should I get? Pastor, which book should I read? Because everyone wants to only read that which agrees with the system. You don't want to be represented. You don't want to be walking around wearing the wrong gang colors, right? You got to be wearing the right gang colors, right? Okay? You get yourself in trouble, right? And so then I'm supposed to just go home, look up what other people say about the passage, and then my job is to make sure I have a good introduction, make proper eye contact, throw in a little joke, end it with a little sad note, get your three little points, and get you out by noon. Doing theology is like, hey, guys, we're going to deal with this problem and we're going to try to figure it out. And we're going to ask hypotheses and we're going to create our own theses. We're going to challenge it. We're going to question it. We're going to work on it. And we're going to try to figure this out. And we may not have answers. And and that's a whole different world, right? That's a whole different world. And if we're going to try to focus on the text and not rely on the systems, guess what we may not find? Sometimes we're going to struggle with what the right answer is, are we not? Now, here's my problem. I think Bible college and seminary is a scam because you learn a system. You know what you don't do for four years in a school? You don't really learn the Bible. You have classes on the Bible, right? But you don't really. Can you imagine a Bible college or a seminary where all you do for four years is you just work on the text? That's all you do. You just work on the text. No, no system. You just work on the text. You just work on the text. You work, and you may, you may be, uh, you should be enlightened to how all the different systems interpret it, but the school should never give you which one is right. Now, the only problem is churches, many churches will only hire pastors who come, who have degrees from a certain School, because they want to ensure that that pastor will keep maintaining the same system. It's all such a racket. So in reality, Protestants should not say sola scriptura. What should we say? I don't know the Latin word for system. Sola sistema, there we go. It should be sola sistema because it's a system. And I'm telling you, I can challenge that. 
Because anytime you want to make an argument to me about a theological perspective, in fact, I was reading an article yesterday and they made a statement something like this. They summarized it something like this. No Christian should ever make a theological claim until they can demonstrate that they've actually studied the Bible. Do you think that would work in any church if someone made that claim and made that a rule? That you cannot make any theological claim until you can clearly demonstrate you've actually studied the text? How well do you think that would go over? It wouldn't go over. Because because we don't like... We want to be, because rather we, we want to say, and the whole thing is so weird because in a roundabout way, we're simply using God and using the Bible really is simply a tool to justify our own selves as being the authority. The, the, this, this journey gets us to right here. I mean, we're, we're, I know we're going to jump from 1560 to 1909, but in a roundabout way, that's where you have to kind of skip because now really the Geneva Bible is the study Bible and now this is going to kind of become the study Bible for the American church and for American evangelicalism, right? There's going to be a Bible conference that's going to be, uh, that's going to be very important to this. We studied it. Studied a certain creed from that Bible conference. Anybody remember what Bible conference that was or what creed that was? The Niagara one. Yes, the Niagara Bible Conference. And remember, this is also going to play hand in hand with the books I tell everyone to read all the time. The Fundamentals. This is going to be right hand in hand with this. For those listening online, I'm holding the Schofield Bible in one hand, and oh, I don't know which volume, one of the volumes of the fundamentals right here. This, this becomes American evangelicalism right here. Now, they would argue they were fighting American evangelicalism at the time because American evangelicalism was being influenced by higher criticism coming from Europe, and you're going to have the breakaway from the fundamentalists to the evangelicals. But guess what? Even the evangelicals, when they break away, they're still going to maintain a lot of what Schofield says in this kind of world. They're just going to do so in a much more not fighting way, combative way, and not in such a dogmatic way. But it's because a system is instituted. All right, well, stop right there. That gets you from, we went from 1517 to 1560, and then basically we jumped to 1917. I'm telling you where we're going, obviously. All right, so we go from 1517 to 1917. And inadvertently, the authority of the church is replaced by the authority of the system. And the system now tells you how to exegete. And there's some in the Reformed world who will say your theology should guide your exegesis. Some of you may have heard that from Reformed theologians. I think that's an abomination. Your theology should never control your exegesis. Your exegesis should control your theology. All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. 
thank you that we have the ability in 2023 to just look at all the dates and times and people and events in church history so that we can determine what really happened and be spared from the romanticized version of it. Forgive us for how sometimes we've cling to these romanticized ideas that have really blinded us to what exactly happened. And let us see that the flaws and mistakes made in the past are very much present in our own lives because we all are guilty of making ourselves the authority. Forgive us when we have replaced your word with something else. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And God's people said...